Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Friday, August 31st, 2018. I'm your host, Derek Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. Our special guest in the studio is Decker Dame, my son, because we don't have a babysitter this morning. So here he is. And coming up on today's show... I had a few people say, hey, I missed an interview with someone I really wanted to hear. So we're going to replay our interview with Tim Kennedy from earlier this week. Then we're also going to talk to a couple of veterans, one American, one British, who are working their way, walking across America to raise awareness for you know, the mental health and physical health of our wounded warriors. And we're also going to talk with Walking with the Wounded, a separate group that uh, the VFW has, uh, has asked if we'd like to talk to them today. And we said, absolutely, we would. And that's what we're going to do. So you can look forward to all of that on a big packed Friday show heading into the holiday weekend today. Jake, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic, Eric. Apparently uh, apparently better than you in the morning you've had. Yeah, I'm sick. Uh, I've got a nasty cold that I started coming down with on like Wednesday night. Didn't feel good yesterday. Had a whole bunch of stuff to get done yesterday, and then woke up this morning, went downstairs, and was like, huh, the babysitter's not here. Normally, the babysitter has let herself in by the time I leave. And I started remembering, I think I may have been told a few weeks ago that she wasn't going to be here on Friday, and I had to uh, accommodate for that. Uh, Yeah, so the babysitter was a no-show. I think she wasn't intended to show. She wasn't intended to be here. But she uh, she wasn't there, so uh, I had to wake somebody up and bring him on in. And he says he's going to be quiet and sit still in the studio and not play around with the camera. He can look into the camera. That's fine. Do not touch that, though. Yeah, if you hear me yelling, don't touch that. Be quiet. Sit down. It's uh, directed, obviously, at JQ's and not at... Uh, I'm such a troublemaker. Not at my lovely son. The camera that we're talking about, if you didn't know, if you listen to this regularly... We are now doing a Facebook Live of the very first segment, the recording of it, because this is a live to Decker. See, and if you tune into Facebook Live, you would have just gotten to see my son knock the camera over, Jake catch it, and reset (laughs) it back up. So all sorts of crazy stuff that you should be tuning in for. Uh, It's about 7.15 every morning is when we do the recording of the first segment for the show. Then, of course, we have the other segments of the show coming up. Got any plans for the holiday weekend, Jake? You doing anything special or just uh, three straight days of gaming? Three straight days of gaming. That's pretty much what I do, man. I'm very boring. Yeah, me too. Just with a five-year-old that we have to do. He'll have like a swim lesson on Saturday. I've been feeling sick the last couple of days. My wife's been out of town. She gets back at like 4 p.m. today. Uh, So as soon as she gets back, I'm going to sleep for probably three, four days straight. (laughs) And she can deal with that however she wants to, but that's what's going to happen what games are you playing currently uh let's see right now i'm playing god of war ah. 
There's a new one of those, right? Yes, brand new. So, just came out a couple months ago. It's a PlayStation game, and considering that I'm a pro-American fellow, I have a Microsoft Xbox and not one of those communist uh, PlayStations from Japan. So, yeah, I don't play God of War. Can't say anything about it. Well, your loss. I've heard it's a very good game, so, you know, that's okay. I don't get to play games nearly as much as I used to anymore because I'm working. <coughs> and I think a lot of people out there, Jake would like to be working, and if you're looking for work in Wisconsin, well, they are looking for veterans. The state of Wisconsin, they're putting their money where their mouth is, launching a multi-million dollar campaign to recruit veterans to live and work in the Badger State. In fact, Wisconsin says it has 90,000 jobs to fill, and they've launched a transitioning veteran outreach program that's partnering with Hiring Our Heroes, which is, of course, the federal uh, program for that. Please get out of the camera. You don't ever want to come in here again, do you? The way you're behaving right now. See, this is parenting. You get to hear that <laughs> on the radio. That's I'm pra- I'm 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 taking notes. Yeah, I'm practicing notes for, for the day to come. You, you have to remember there has to be uh, repercussions for negative actions. He likes coming in here, don't you? Yeah, but when he starts misbehaving and jumping in front of the camera and knocking the camera over and not doing what I asked him to. That's when, uh, you know, you need to make sure that there is a price to pay for those actions. So anyway, back to Wisconsin. Uh, You know, they've got a lot of interesting things going on there. In fact, the state says that they lead the country in offering the most state-funded benefits to veterans and their families. And, of course, there's a website where you can go to check this out, inwisconsin.com. We recently had Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin uh, live in studio with us talking about Uh, Some more national programs, but also some local stuff in Wisconsin, which doesn't really have any military installations beyond reserve centers and stuff like that, but has a large veteran population. So looking at this site, it's called inwisconsin.com slash veterans. It basically says if you're looking for the best place to live and work after your military service ends, Wisconsin has it all. Clean air, beautiful natural areas. Friendly neighbors, great stores, blah, blah, blah. So it's cheese. got a whole bunch of stuff. It definitely has cheese, the Green Bay Packers, if that's the kind of thing you're into. Um, how Washington, or sorry, how Wisconsin stacks up to other states. It's got a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, it's basically got a checklist that is actually kind of beneficial, even if you're not interested in living or working in Wisconsin, because it shows all the other states, too, and shows how many, like, skilled nursing facilities. Wisconsin's got six of them. Minnesota's got five. Idaho has eight. It's a lot. Maine has seven. North Dakota has six. I mean, there are, uh, you know, a lot of interesting pieces of information that you can get from uh, this website there, whether you're interested in in moving to Wisconsin or not. So it says that they have 23 state benefits for veterans and that that is the most in the country. And it says that somebody only has five. Who's who's this with the least? I got to scroll up to the top. Washington, D.C. Oh, man, this is not a good morning. <laughs> I don't not. laugh at you. I laugh at the situation. No, okay, yeah, I, I'm laughing at me because it's like, oh, God. I, I mean, any other day I would have just called and said, you've got the show. I'm staying home with my son and I don't feel good. But today we have several live in-studio interviews and a couple of them are at the same time. You doing one, me doing the other. So me not being here would have put everybody really in a bad situation. So 
you got to suck it up and do what you do. That's what you do. Um, and it's just, it's going to be a remarkably unpleasant morning. And as soon as I'm done with those interviews, I'm going to get out of here as soon as I possibly can. Like literally the moment I hang up the phone with uh, this doctor from the VA that we're going to talk to about their recent, a recent uh, innovation summit, uh, as soon as I hang up the phone, I'm walking out the door. That's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. And I'm out of here. Saw a story uh, the other day that uh, I wasn't here yesterday morning. Jake stood in because we had an open house for kindergarten. That was also fun when I was sick and sweating bullets with a bunch of kids running around and screaming. That was a great time. It's been a lovely week for me, really. Um, yeah, <laughs> as I said, when my wife gets home today, she's on her own for the next few days. Like I'm, I'm just going to be in a, I'm going to close the blinds, turn off the lights, be in the dark with orange juice and water and just nothing else. There you go. So, uh, 20 cc's of NyQuil and just forget life. Yeah, I, I can't see. And that's the thing. Like, I can't take any of the drowsy medication now because I'm home alone with him. I can't do it. It's not, uh, it's not workable. It's just, it's a bad situation. It's been a miserable couple of weeks, actually, to be honest with you, as far as uh, just being, you know, I, I love my son, but man, taking care of a kid alone, single parents. Uh, you know, I know how you do it. I just, I, I don't envy you for having to do it <laughs> for all those amount of times. All right. So this story that came out is that the uh, Marine Corps is quote unquote, officially banning revenge porn and racial supremacy. Of course, that meaning like the ideology of white and or black and or Hispanic and or anything supremacy. Uh, interesting. I don't know what it will accomplish beyond giving the Marine Corps uh, an easier path to getting people out who do those things. You're still going to have people who do this revenge porn stuff. Uh, it didn't used to happen, but now everybody's got a high-quality HD camera in their pocket, essentially, with their phone. And I don't know what it is, man, but young people just seem to love sexual things on camera and sending pictures to each other and taking videos and it's a bad situation, man. That's It's a bad, bad idea. I don't understand why it became such a thing. Like, oh, well, hey, I've got a camera. Let's do this. So I don't understand where it came from, but it's something that's not going away. It's just not. And you would think it wouldn't need to be said that you shouldn't do that while you're serving in the service. But the Marines have had their whole, uh, what was it, Marines United, I think it was, was the uh, the scandal where they had the sharing of the uh the sharing of videos essentially and stuff for um you know just private videos that were shared out that were stolen uh, basically to get back at these female marines their nude photos and stuff i mean i listen i i look at it this way uh if there aren't any nude photos of you then you don't have to worry about this situation so don't put yourself in that situation that being said the people who illegally or unscrupulously even if it's not illegal depending on the jurisdiction share those things out uh, i shouldn't be doing that either you know it's just don't do it well now it's official the marine corps has a policy it's uh, an order known as the marine corps prohibited activities in conduct prevention and response policy which also condemns marines who witness these activities and say or do nothing Additionally, it lays out paths that Marines can use to report the activities and improve support for victims and addresses training and education for all Marines. This is uh, a statement that came out from the Marine Corps spokesman for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, Yvonne Carlock. 
The order reaffirms the Marine Corps' commitment to maintaining a culture of dignity, respect, and trust in which all members of the organization are afforded equal opportunity to achieve their full potential based solely upon individual merit, fitness, intellect, and ability. Uh, you know, again, too many words for saying, stop being stupid. That's what they're trying to say. So just say it. That's that's 50 words to say what you could say with three. Stop being stupid. Don't do dumb things. But, of course, we know the military's, uh, as much as people like to say, oh, I love everybody who serves in the military. Whenever they say that, I say, really? Including the evil and dumb ones that I met while I was in? Because there are those, believe it or not. Of course, the other thing that's in there is the whole racial supremacy issue. That's because of those Charlottesville uh, riots, I guess you would call them. I don't know. Uh, where you had the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, and some people showed up to protest it. There were a bunch of fights. Uh, there were a bunch of, uh, well, there was not a bunch. There was the one guy who drove his car into a group of people killing one. This is something where one Marine was actually found to have participated in that rally in Charlottesville. He was not involved in the death, but he was involved with uh, the beating of someone uh, and kind of boasted about it on social media, which, again, you know, stop being dumb. Don't do these things in the first place. And then you look at how they get caught. It's it's obvious. These, these are not smart people. This guy being involved in the first place in this rally and beating someone severely for no good reason, that's dumb. And then, of course, he's bragging about it on social media. That's dumb. Again, it's it's all it's it's kind of ridiculous to me. And uh, Jake Hughes wrote the story that you can find on ConnectingVets.com. Jake, at the end of it, there's a statement from uh, this Yvonne Carlock from the Marines, whatever it is, Manpower and Reserve Affairs spokesperson or whatever. It's like 50, 60 words to say what I think I just summed up nicely in three. Stop being stupid. Exactly. And when you read the story, not a lot was actually done. They just sort of consolidated several different orders, like, and especially ones that hadn't been updated in a while, like their equal opportunity, uh, sexual harassment programs, and sort of molded them into one big order and added several specific languages because of the things that have happened recently with Marines United and the Marine from the Unite the Right rally. And so, it, really, this is twofold. It's the Marine Corps covering its butt, and it's the Marine Corps trying to improve victim services. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's. I think, again, it gives them a clearer path to getting these idiots out of the Corps, which it, it, every service has issues with this. It's just that the Marine Corps has been a lot more high-profile because, boy, they've gone extra hard at being extra dumb with a couple of things. Marines United... Then this one, uh, this one idiot who was down at the Unite the Right uh, rally, that uh, you know, I, I think we've seen quite clearly how little support that movement has. They just had a rally in Washington D.C. and like thirty people showed up yeah. to it. So the media was all hyping it up like it was going to be uh, some massive mixture of clan and skinhead people marching on the Capitol, and it was proof of how evil the country has become. And it's like two dozen doofuses and stupid t-shirts show yeah. up and you go like oh okay that's what this is about <laughs> speaking of doofuses well talented ones anyway oliver stone has tweeted about john mccain this is pretty interesting he tweeted uh i guess this was two days ago now I, again i wasn't here yesterday but 
Uh, there's a story up on the site. Phil Briggs has it. And he tweeted yesterday that, as an infantry in Vietnam, I saw war's horror on the ground. Apparently, Senator John McCain dropping bombs was blind to it. Even having been a POW, he still grew into a crackpot who pushed war at every turn. That's Oliver Stone, director of Platoon, JFK, and so on and so forth. And I guess he's done some movies recently, but I can't remember the last time I saw him. I think his last one was the one he made specifically to make fun of Bush. A W? W? Yeah. Yeah, which uh, I I never saw it. Uh, Didn't he do a 9-11 movie before that? Yeah, with uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's who you want to bring home the the pathos of uh, a, an event that harms our uh, our nation's psyche and changes life forever. Put Nicolas Cage up there. I mean, he saw him in that movie where he screamed about bees, the Wicker Man. And oh thought, yeah. Oh yeah. This is the guy I want. The greatest about. actor in American history. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, he's been occasionally good, uh, and I joke. I mean, Nicolas Cage seems to be a. Uh, a lunatic, but also kind of a fun guy in a way. Um, that wasn't the only tweet from Stone. His next one, at Senator John McCain. So he's actually tagging John McCain, who's now dead in these tweets. Like, what are you expecting him to respond? Jerk. Warmongering in Libya, Syria, and Ukraine in recent years brought chaos to the Middle East and Europe. His push for these wars resulted in the current refugee crisis in Europe. Well, here's the thing. Um, in Ukraine... Now, Oliver Stone is one of these people who thinks that the Russians are behind everything as well. Uh, in Ukraine, the Russians essentially invaded sovereign Ukrainian territory, and the Ukrainians, who were nowhere near uh, equipped to handle that, we gave them a little bit of help. We gave them a tiny bit of help to do that. Uh, apparently, that is also not okay in Oliver Stone's book. That was a bad thing. So trying to stop the Russians from just taking over the entire Crimea region in the Ukraine. That was not good. Uh, but also, Russia are the bad guys, so I'm not sure uh, what sort of mental gymnastics he has to play to convince himself that that was a bad thing. Uh, Libya. Libya is a bad situation. It was a bad situation when Gaddafi was in charge. It's a bad situation after Gaddafi's gone. There you go. I mean, that, that's essentially what it is. I think the problem with Libya is... There was never a plan. It was just, well, let's get Gaddafi out, and then one of these groups will take over. What we keep seeming to forget in this area, same thing in Syria, which is part of the reason why, I'm personally, Bashar al-Assad is not a good guy. The regime is not a good thing. But do you know what? The other options over there, eh, only slightly better than ISIS. He's, he's kind of the best option. It's kind of like what we saw in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was awful. You take him out of the equation, and then the problem is, you know, we think of we think of countries like the United States where people get along, where it doesn't matter what your religious or political affiliation is. You're not going to start murdering your neighbor because they vote uh, Republican or because they go to a different church than you do or anything like that. In Iraq, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It is there's very strong divisions between Sunni and Shia Muslims, and there are uh, you know uh, ethnic tensions within the country. Not everybody there is the same. You got to keep remembering that Iraq has uh, people from different backgrounds. You know, essentially different tribes is what it all started out as, and a lot of those uh, years and years and decades and millennia of. Uh, contrast and disagreements have stuck around to this day to some extent and then it's been of course over the last 1600 years or so compounded by uh the religious uh, uh 
changes over there and everything like that. I, you know, it, it's it's difficult. You take Gaddafi out of power, and that's a good thing. But then who replaces him? And in Libya, the answer has been kind of nobody. It's just kind of a vacuum right over over there right now. In Syria, again, you know, it's it's one of these kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situations, it seems to me. You go in and you stop Assad from uh, from killing off the rebels. And, of course, what we've seen, the original rebels, you know who one of the biggest rebel groups fighting against him was that John McCain actually was talking about supporting? Who? ISIS. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were uh, a... Uh, a freedom fighter group. They were an anti-Assad militia, essentially. It's actually pictures of McCain meeting with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who's the leader of ISIS. He's uh, it, He went over there kind of in secret, I guess. This was back in like 2013, 12, something like that. It's a long time ago. Uh, he went over there. He met with them. I mean, you don't know who these groups are. And a lot of them, by the nature of what that part of the world is all about, a lot of them are religious extremists in one form or the other. Part of the reason for the rebellion in Syria, the civil war, is the fact that uh, Bashar al-Assad is, uh, I think he's an Alawi, he's, he's, he's from a specific Muslim sect, Alawite, I think it may be. Anyway, the sect that he's from is considered basically um, blasphemous by many other people, so they don't like him being in charge. That's a lot of what it comes down to with a lot of these groups. Not all of them. There are some, I guess, as secular as you can get groups within the, the Syrian revolution, but the majority of them are, uh, are very much in it for the religious reasons. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting thing to look at. Oliver Stone also tweets... Hashtag MSM obits have ignored Senator John McCain's long legacy of embracing war and regime change throughout the world. Looking for honest journalism? Read Max Blumenthal's take on MSM darling Senator John McCain's warmongering legacy. Huh. Here's the thing. Oliver Stone spoke glowingly of Hugo Chavez. Yeah. Now, Hugo Chavez didn't uh, go outside the borders of Venezuela in large part because he simply wasn't capable of it. That's not something that Venezuela could do. Had he been able to, yeah, he might have. And I think there were actually some forays into Colombia by the Venezuelan military uh, dealing with some rebels that were hiding out just over the border in Colombia and so on. And Colombia's done the same thing. You get out into the jungles uh, of South America and things get kind of kind of sketchy. But this is a guy who Oliver Stone was like, oh, this is great. You know, socialism in Venezuela, it's, it's wonderful. Him and Sean Penn and a bunch of other people have spoken up about this and said how great Venezuela was and how great socialism was. And then, of course, it actually uh, falls apart like everyone knew that it would or everyone with a shred of common sense knew that it would. And when Hugo Chavez died and things were already falling apart at the seams, that Oliver Stone, you know, was glowing in his reviews of the life of Hugo Chavez. Now, Hugo may not have been a warmonger outside of Venezuela, but he was a monster within Venezuela. Why is one better than the other, I wonder, in the eyes of Oliver Stone? You know, he's a veteran. He was over there in Vietnam. He was an infantryman on the ground. Platoon is somewhat semi-autobiographical, so... He can say these things. He can talk about what he uh, what he saw, what he thinks, what went on there. I mean, there's going to be uh, no shortage of people with those opinions. But there's also nothing stopping us from calling him out for, one, what does this do 
I mean, and, and it's kind of a little too on the nose that he's atting or tagging John McCain's Twitter account in these tweets. He's dead. He's dead, dude. He's not going to respond to you. He is dead. What 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 are you trying to gain from that? You know, I don't understand it. I mean, I do understand it. It's like he's he's yelling at somebody who's already in the grave because apparently that's going to change something. And Oliver Stone, again, guy who who supported this awful regime in Venezuela that's led to the top murder rate in the world, I believe. You've got massive inflation, people having trouble finding things as basic as toilet paper and food. That guy was great, but John McCain, who served our country, he his service didn't really count, as he says in this tweet. Uh, John McCain dropping bombs was blind to it because he was up in the sky. So if you're a pilot, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps pilot, Army Hilo pilot, whatever. Uh, your service in warfare doesn't count. Oliver Stone would like you to know that. You're not really there. You don't really see what's going on just because you have a different perspective. Uh, and obviously you're cold and, and unfeeling and you don't realize that you might be taking lives with those bombs that you drop. And, and having been a POW, uh, it still didn't matter. Like, you know, he didn't really know anything about the war. Only Oliver Stone and people who think like him do. People like Hugo Chavez. <laughs> All right. Well, you're listening to the morning briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. It's Friday. I'm miserable because I've got a cold and I've got my son here in studio with me, which, oh, man, I love my son, but he is not making this any easier this morning. Just not a great morning, but it's going to be a great show. We're going to replay our interview with Tim Kennedy coming up next. Then we're going to have the Walk Across America folks as well as the Walking with the Wounded folks. This is going to be a fantastic and wonderful show coming up for you today. Make sure you stick around and listen to the whole thing. It's the Morning Briefing. On behalf of Jake Hughes, I'm Eric Damon. We will be back with Tim Kennedy right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is what we do, and I'll tell you why we do it. Each and every member of our team is a veteran. We know what it's like to have worn the uniform, and just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off that very last time. The struggles, the problems, the benefits that can come with leaving the military, and we want to make sure that you are able to not only transition well, but continue living your best veteran life. So each and every day, you should be checking out the content created at ConnectingVets.com and following us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guests are probably happy to be sitting down right now because they've been walking quite a bit over the last couple of months. They are Larry Hankel and Johnny Burns, an American and British veteran, who are taking part in Walk of America through Walking with the Wounded and join us live in studio now. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Uh, very well, thank you. Great, great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, and my feet are feeling pretty good. How about yours? Well, actually, let's wait to talk about Walk of America, which is a, a group of three American and three UK vets essentially walking across the country, bringing attention to veterans' issues. But first, let's talk a little bit about the two of you. Larry, we'll begin with you. Where are you from? When did you join? And what did you do in the United States Marine Corps? Uh, from Dallas, Texas. Joined in 2000. 
Uh, January 11th, 2000, and uh, I'm an amp tracker, amphibious assault uh, vehicle is what I did, crew chief. Uh, deployed three times, and uh, last of which was a initial invasion into Iraq. Uh, first two was when the USS Cole was bombed, we were on a Westpac or Western Pacific deployment and uh, got to go to the lovely Gulf of Aden there in Yemen and then uh, provide security for the coal. Second one was Operation Anaconda there in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm. It is uh, basically a given that if you served in the Marine Corps after that time, I mean, I joined in 98, you joined in 2000. I knew some Marines, we were talking off air up in Iceland, and just about each and every one of them uh, would end up going on to Iraq and Afghanistan. Having joined in 2000, and then, of course, uh, as people may remember, September of 2001, things changed a little bit. bit. Uh, Was that something? How did that feel for somebody who joined just prior, essentially, uh, one year before it took place? Uh, You know, it was actually... Thinking back now, it was pretty cool because, you know, we joined the Marine Corps to what we say kill, you know, and and, uh, actually just better our lives, travel the world, stuff like that. But throughout all your training, uh, you want to go downrange, you know, you want you want the the call. Right. And uh, I remember that day and how much it changed just being on base, how you couldn't get in, get out. Uh, We were actually in BAS getting our shots for a pre-deployment workup and uh we knew right then and there it was going to be an extended deployment and we're going to get to hook and jab. Yeah. Uh, one question for you that I sometimes ask of Marines that are on the show who have traveled the world and seen those things. Do the crayons taste different in different countries as you <laughs> yeah. move around? Yeah. Yeah. A little, <laughs> little different. I think they use goat, goat's milk over overseas. <laughs> that one got a laugh out of our other guest, Mr. Johnny Burns, who, well, your track was a little bit different. I don't think you were eligible to join the United States Marine Corps. So, Johnny, tell us about you, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while serving uh, over in jolly old England. I was born in Inverness, Scotland, and then raised in London. Joined the Army in 2007 as an infantry soldier. Spent eight years, um, two and a half of which were out in Germany, two and a half out in Cyprus, six months out in Falklands, three months out in Jordan, and four months in Afghanistan before returning back to England in 2013. Then I got medical discharge in 2016. So... You know, you now, over the last couple of months, have uh, have spent some time alongside your American compatriots. Serving in the British military, I came across a couple in Afghanistan who were uh, would, would come up to the north where I was every once in a while, and you'd, just, you'd bump into them. Do you think it's more similar or more different serving in uniform in the U.K. as compared to the U.S.? Um, I think it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Um, I know when we seen uh, the Americans when we were out on, in theater or... We're out in different countries. They're always doing the exact same th- things that we were doing. Um, the only difference is they were allowed to drink. We weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And that's uh, oftentimes backwards the other way around from my experience uh, with the English military. And, of course, the two of you have joined together with uh, Walking with the Wounded. You're taking part in Walk of America, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But... Let's also talk about the transition process. Larry, what was it like? I know for Marines, it can often be even more difficult because the Marine Corps is not just a job. It's not just an adventure. It's it's a lifestyle and it's something that stays with you. What do you remember about that that first day out of the Marine Corps in that period of your life? Was it a difficult period for you? Uh, not necessarily in the beginning. Uh, you know, that transition, I guess a lot of us can't wait to get out or, you know, and, and then you kind of get it, look back on it a few years later and you wish you were back in. But I would say the transition just strictly thereafter getting out was pretty simple. And, you know, I had a girlfriend and 
all that stuff. So it kind of made it a little easier. Um, I would say probably three, four years into it, when you start experiencing some of the stuff that you know you saw or or did, and uh, just wishing that you were back in with that camaraderie that you don't necessarily have when you get out. Uh, that's when it started to take a turn, I think. That's uh, kind of interesting. There are those people you get out and things are going pretty well at first, smooth sailing, and then you hit the bumpy patch and it can kind of surprise you. It can come out of nowhere because, hey, I-, I thought I'd gotten through the roughest part first getting out. Did it shock you that some of the, the, the bumps in the road came across long later in life? It did. You know, uh, before I knew it, I found myself divorced, uh, jobless. Um, it It just on top of the other stuff that I was facing, you know, it just compounds. And then, you know, you throw alcohol in the mix, pain pills in the mix and all these medications and it, you know, before you know it, you're in a very dark spot, you know, too long down the road. But that's why it kind of took me by surprise because it was smooth sailing. And then all of a sudden stuff just started to happen and uh, it just seemed to snowball. Yeah, it certainly can. Johnny, how about you? And also there's an added question here of, when it comes to the the Royal Army, the Royal Air Force, the the British military in general, what's it like set up to help you transition? Are there a lot of programs available for you when you left the service? No, not not when I left. I know they've brought things in now for the people that are leaving at the minute. Because um, one of the other walkers on the on the, on the team, he's actually transitioning at the minute from. He's still serving actively. Oh wow! Um, and when he gets back, he he will have his last couple of days in camp before he gets discharged. Um, and I know he's been put on different things to when I got out. When I got out, there was nothing there apart from CV workshops, so like building a resume, right? Um, which really isn't that helpful. Um, you kind of get institutionalized in the military uh, where you don't have to think for yourself. You don't have to do anything for yourself. It, it happens automatically. You don't have to pay bills because it comes out of your pay. Um, you don't have to learn to cook because you've got a kitchen on the camp that's cooking your meals every day. Um, so your your independence is taken away from you and then they just say see you later you walk out the door and and that's it you're on your own Mm. and it was hard for me at first Um, I joined the uh, when I joined the army in the first place I joined off the streets I was homeless and I ended up going back there after the army really so that was really hard because it, it put me back down to square one again and you sat there and you're like god I just did like eight years of awesome things didn't expect to be back here again Mm. Um, but yeah it's just silly little things like how to communicate with civilians they really are on a completely different like wavelength to soldiers Um, and then paying bills like paying your rent going food shopping you haven't got a clue what to buy because I was a kid I joined the army being a kid and I've left the army being a soldier and there's no there's no place for soldiers on civvy street there's no job that I can walk into and be an infantryman. Um, so it doesn't matter how much you help me build my CV, that's not going to help me out in the civilian life. That's absolutely true and something I'm sure Larry can identify with, particularly the Marines, because basically they get out and all they know how to do is grunt and smash <laughs> things. And yeah. I, Of course, in all seriousness, you were taught how to be a soldier. You weren't really taught how to be a, an adult or a person, it sounds like. And, and I noticed a lot of the same things when I was serving in the Navy where – eventually if you stayed in long enough, I was in 13 years. So when I got out, I was 31 years old or something like that. I'd picked up enough things, but it wasn't really through the military. It was through friends and family and things like that. 
How did you get past those struggles that you had, going from homeless to in the Royal Army to again homeless when you left? What, what got you past that? Um, it was hard. Uh, to start off with, there was drug addictions. There was an alcohol addiction. There was a, a gambling addiction. Um, there was a, a few points where I was like, right, that's it. I've had enough. I'm going to try and kill myself. Took an overdose one day. Um, woke up and was very poorly for a couple of days. Um, but you just got to try and push through it i'd been homeless once before so i knew that i could get through the homeless part of it um then i found the beacon where i live at the minute which is a homeless shelter for veterans um in the north of england and me and one of the other team members we live there and that's where i got in touch with walking with the wounded and found them as a charity um there's a lady that works in there she's an employment advisor so she sat me down she started speaking to me and she gave me an ear someone that i could speak to and open up to and, and i found that very helpful rather than just being someone that was sat there because they had to sit there because they were getting paid to sit there she was sat there because she wanted to sit there and she wanted to help she wanted to hear my story and she wanted to help me move on from that she didn't want me being homeless again properly like on the street homeless um so she put me on courses and things and it really helped me and then she put me on a challenge that Walking with the Wounded do back in the UK, which is it's just like a, a 50 kilometer walk out in the countryside. Um, and I went and did it and I, I loved it, absolutely yeah. loved it. And I found a lot of therapy in it, uh, being around like-minded veterans who I could speak to and not have to pr pretend to be someone that I wasn't. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, that's what helped me. That's and that's often what it takes. It can be yeah. one one thing, one little thing that gets you through it. Of course, we're speaking with Johnny Burns and Larry Hinkle. They are taking part in Walk of America through Walking with the Wounded. Larry, I'm going to ask you right now: How did you come to find out about Walking with the Wounded and the Walk of America? And what can you tell us about the organization? Oh, first and foremost, it's an unbelievable, unbelievable organization. Uh, they've allowed us to connect and and uh, learn each other from that like-minded we, we've both been in the same foxhole or we've all been in the same foxhole as a matter of fact kev one of the the other walkers he's uh we chewed the same dirt now basra in the initial invasion of of iraq so you've got a such a tight-knit family uh but basically i uh i've done a few walks in the past and and uh another nonprofit reached out to me and said hey uh we've got a thing you might be interested in flew me out to jacksonville uh, sat down, got screened, and, and went through a process of, of selection. Uh, ended up getting chosen. And, you know, here I am three and a half months after the fact, and, and uh, we're coming up on our thousandth mile next week. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, a seamless process as far as the meeting this team. You know, we only knew each other through emails before this. We get to California, and it's like we've known each other for 20 years, uh, being, you know, the British and, and Americans, the, the coalition that we had right there in, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and, and all that. It's it's same team, same fight, and that's exactly what this is. You know, we've got to see so much of the country that, that a lot of Americans will never do, never get to see. We got to see a grizzly bear swim in the in a lake in the Grand Tetons. You know, I mean, we've uh, we've experienced 110 percent humidity down in Louisiana, and and uh, it's just unbelievable things that the the charity has provided. You know, and 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 getting that word out there that hey, you know, reach out to your nonprofits. There's we're all products of TBI, you know, uh, PTSD, whatever it is. 
reach out to your nonprofits, reach out to your VA hospitals, volunteer for them, get around those those people that understand where you've been and you understand where they've been. That's where the healing is going to take place. Right. Johnny, you took part in some walking with the wounded activities in the UK. That's where the organization is primarily based out of. Yep. What made you want to take part in Walk of America and come over here? Uh, it's always been my dream to move to America. I've always wanted to live here. Um, everything that you see back in the UK about America just makes it even better. And then you see all these cool films and movies <laughs> and TV shows. And you're like, yeah, I could be part of that. It suits me more. Um, <clears throat> so that was one of my five-year goals when I first moved into the homeless shelter. And now a year down the line, um, an email got sent out saying that there was going to be a Walk of America and it was going to be through Walking with the Wounded. Um, so I looked a bit into it, found out that it was a thousand mile walk through 68 cities in 12 weeks. Um, Prince Harry was going to be the patron of it. Um, and he had this vision. He wants to set up the, the Veterans Transatlantic Partnership. Um, he believes that if uh, our soldiers are serving together on the battlefield, then we should heal together off the battlefield. Mm. And... I kind of got that and I understood that and I was like, yeah, it, it, he's, he's trying to do the right thing here. But also, it's a walk and I found, recently I found therapy and walking, so why not go and do it? Um, so I applied for it. The exact same process as the Americans did over here. We had a, like a screening, then we went for a selection weekend, like a test weekend, and then we got the phone call saying yes or no. And obviously I got the phone call saying yes, yeah, so yeah. I was really happy. Um, <laughs> you got the good one. That's it, um, and it's, it's it's been phenomenal. Um, we've seen some amazing things. We've been to some amazing places. I counted it up last night. We've walked so far. We've walked over nine hundred and fifty miles. We've driven over ten thousand miles, and we've flown over twenty thousand miles in the past wow. thirteen weeks. And that's a, that's a lot of traveling. And now we're getting to the the back end of it. As much as you still got the buzz because you know the finals coming. It's it's draining. It's getting tiring, and but yeah, I wouldn't change none of it. That's the that's the big question that I'm sure you guys get most of the time. Walking a thousand miles, I don't even like driving a thousand miles. <laughs> walking a thousand miles sounds insane to me. Um, what's the walk been like? I mean, has it been uh, uh, an improving your health experience, both physically and mentally? I mean, I think Johnny was telling me off air you've actually put on weight walking a thousand yeah, miles. Um, How'd you do that? Everyone has. I mean, we spent. We spent two and a half weeks in Texas and we were eating barbecue every single day. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, it was amazing. But this belly just appeared and now I'm like, right, I need to eat salad and I need to eat like a rabbit and it's not very nice. <laughs> but we, the first two weeks, it was quite tough. Um, we, we were literally, when we went, uh, the first week went from LA down to San, San Diego and that was the Pacific Coast Highway. And it was 113 miles on concrete in like 100 degree heat with 95% humidity. So it hurt and people's feet got ripped up. Um, I actually got hernia in week two um, from the amount of exertion we were doing. So that nearly stopped me. I've had knee injuries. I know Larry's had his injuries. Kev, one of the other guys on the team, he literally lost all the skin off of his little toe. Um, so that was really fleshy and really looked really sore. So we've had a few niggles, but nothing major. We have talked to uh, uh, Jason, the founder of Go Ruck, and they do like these 50-mile star courses and all these other things. And people that have done those courses have told me about the you know the pain of it, embracing the suck and all that. It, it, it kind of eventually gives way to a catharsis. Have there been those moments where you were like, I don't know how much more I could take of this, and then you just kind of broke through and were like, oh, now I feel good. Yeah, we, we, we did a ruck with them. 
we did a rock would go rock down in um, Jacksonville. Jacksonville, yeah. We talked yeah. to Jason right after he did it. He he really enjoyed getting out there with you guys. Yeah, we we went down there and we walked with him. But yeah, you get you get to that point where you say fifteen miles in and you know you've got five miles left. Or if you <clears throat> the support crew are really awesome because you they'll say to you right, you're doing fifteen miles. You get to the fifteen mile point and it's like, oh, how do you fancy doing another seven? And it's like, oh, there we go. <laughs> that's that's the hard bit when when someone plays with your mind like that. But it's it's all good fun. Um, I don't think there's been a point where anyone on the team's turned around and said, right, I cannot go any further. We're speaking with Larry Hinkle, United States Marine Corps veteran, and Johnny Burns, Royal Army veteran, about Walk of America. They're both part of the combined UK-US team that's walking a 1,000 miles across the United States. Seen a lot of great things, I'm sure, Larry. I mean, you've been in uh, St. Louis, I believe. Did you guys go out and see Mount Rushmore at one point, I think? And uh, what's, what's been the response from the people? Obviously, Jason McCarthy and the GORUG folks were happy to come out in, uh, in Jacksonville. What kind of response have you gotten from folks as you've been walking across the country? <clears throat> Unbelievable response. You know, when you get to go to Mount Rushmore and hug a Vietnam vet who's crying because you're thanking him, you know, and that's just some guy that we, we met while we were there, that, that seems to be every place we go. It's, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff going on behind the scenes with us here, um, they're, they're nonstop on their computers. You know, Kate, she's uh, – <laughs> we were sponsored by the NFL, and, and uh, we were at the Jacksonville Jaguars game, and they really took, a, took good care of us and, and made sure it was a great, enjoyable experience. But we're at their scrimmage to kind of open the season up. And sure enough, Kate's on her laptop, you know, right there on the field and, and playing. But you don't see a lot of that stuff. All the stuff behind the scenes that's actually setting this stuff up here at you know Mount Rushmore, Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, uh, but we'll actually be at the Arlington National Cemetery uh, today at four. So we're we're looking forward to seeing that turnout and it's stuff like that where we get to interact with people that that uh, come out and support us. What's left for Walk of America? You guys are closing in on the end. We're right at the, the doorstep of September. It's, it's August 31st as we sit here in the studio. Uh, how much do you guys have left, and, and are you kind of happy or is it a little bit bittersweet that you're nearing the end of this event? Mixed emotions um, from both of us. We've, we've spoke about this the past couple of days as, as a team because we're excited to be at the end, but then if we're at the end, that means that we've got to leave each other and we've got to go back to normality. And... Um, I can't speak for anyone else, but for for myself, that's that's horrible because I've been out here enjoying myself and, in a way, living living a good life for the past couple of months. And I'm about about to go back to where I was before I come out here. And I know that that's not a a nice light place. It's quite a dark place, yeah. but it's just one of them things. You just got to keep in touch with each other, keep chatting to each other. We've only got I think it's forty forty eight miles left. Um, and we, we've got till Thursday to do that, so it's going to be quite, quite chilled and relaxed over the next couple of days. Larry, as you move towards the end of it, how are you feeling? I mean, kind of the same way, a little, little, little misty-eyed as you think about these last couple of months. Most definitely, it's uh, <clears throat> just you know I, I try to the walks that I've done and when they've ended and and how much uh, I want to go back and and take some things in. You know, I just try to I try to let these guys and and, and gals know. Uh, Take it in. Take a lot of it in because this is going to be the last time we'll be around each other. It's, you know, before you know it, it'll be a year down the line. You'll be reflecting on it and you'll you'll say, I wish I did this or I wish I did that. So just take it in and, and uh, it is bittersweet. You know, I don't, I don't want to leave the team, but I know that uh, walking with the wounded has afforded me a lot more tools now 
mentally to uh, fight this this battle. Uh, unfortunately, I just had a buddy kill himself yesterday, oh, and that's man. another one. You know, I mean, we've all had it. Yep. Um, it's just thinking about what this vehicle that we're in right now can do to help that cause is is what I'm I'm focusing on more than anything. Other than you know leaving these guys, I know we'll stay in touch. We'll probably go on some fishing trips together and stuff. But 100%. very very bittersweet. And of course, you'll be staying in touch with the entire team, including Kev Carr from the Royal Logistical, Frankie Perez, he's a National Guardman, Adele Lore, we've talked to before, Master Sergeant in the Air Force, and I must say this before you guys leave today, Kemsley Whittlesey, which may be the most British name I've heard since <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. I just want you to tell him that when you see him later yeah. on today. <laughs> I saw that and I was like, Kemsley Whittlesey? What? Gee, that's not, he's not from Alabama. We say that, that five times fast. <laughs> there we go. So if people want to find out more about Walking with the Wounded, because the organization's not done and they're going to keep on doing some amazing things in the UK as well as here in America, where do they go to find out more about this fantastic organization? walkofamerica.com you can also follow us uh, on social media at, at support the walk on facebook it's uh, walking with the wounded yep and then of course their website is over in the uk so it's www.org.uk so an extra couple of letters on there but i highly recommend it you know Part of what this team has been doing is bringing attention to the issues that veterans face. As Larry just mentioned, suicide. I mean, Johnny's a great example of uh, you were at a point where you considered taking your own life and homelessness. What is the message you'd like to give to people out there about what veterans are going through and what you want them to know about what we're experiencing as veterans? It took one post on social media for me to kind of come out of that darkness and, and realize, whoa, giving back is something that, you know, you were dependent on in the military. And if I can be dependent on again with my brothers and sisters and give back, uh, it'll get you out of that dark place. That's where the true healing takes place. Just get out there, volunteer, reach out to your brother, your sister, your family. Uh, when you when you get together and, and you've been in the same places, I, I can't explain how much healing takes place when you can talk to somebody that knows what you're talking about. And that is really the key talk get it out don't keep it inside how many people that wouldn't talk about what they were going through with their fellow veterans and that's the thing that you need to remember there are people regardless of who you are what you did where you were there is someone out there who understands and will be willing to talk to you about it and i think it's fantastic what the walk of america team has been doing and i want to thank larry hinkle and johnny burns for joining us here in the studio today gentlemen thank you so much uh, both for what you're doing and for what you've gone through and for everything that you will do in the future which i'm sure will be great and thanks for joining us today Thank you Dude. for what you do, man. You you spread the word and you uh, help vets too. So I thank just, you. I talk can, we, a lot. can we just do a big shout out for Larry because he's actually uh, the other day achieved four thousand miles in three years. Wow, <laughs> four thousand miles in three years. Again, I'm not sure I've driven that much in the last. <laughs> uh, no, that's not true. I've been driving back and forth to my home in New York uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years. So I think I've gotten there, but definitely not on my feet. That is impressive. As is everything that Walking with the Wounded and Walk of America are doing. Again, the Walking with the Wounded website, www.wwtw.org.uk. And of course, walkofamerica.com. You can go there as well and check out everything that they're doing. They're coming up towards the end, but Walking with the Wounded will continue on to an amazing event. You're listening to the Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Back after this with the VFW. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. 
Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. I'm Super Producer JQ sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is interviewing someone else and dealing with a five-year-old. So I think I got the, the better end of that deal. Anyway, going to remind you and keep reminding you until you do it, check out the website, ConnectingBets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And make sure you follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingBets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off. We stay on top of the veteran sphere because we are the veteran sphere. Everyone at ConnectingBets.com knows what it's like to serve, knows what it's like to take off that uniform for the last time, and live in the veteran experience. Well, except for one, she's in the National Guard, but you know what? She's okay, too. (laughs) I'm kidding, Kayla. We love you. Anyway, it's Friday, and you know what that means. It's the last day of the week. Weekend's here. Thank God. But also, more importantly, it means it's time to talk with someone from the Veteran of Foreign Wars, the VFW. And I'm joined by Tony Lowe from the VFW. Tony, how's it going? Well, good morning. Thanks, Jake, for having me. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure to have you. Now, remind me of your title because I'm horrible at my job. What yeah, exactly do you it's do? It's a long one. It's uh, Associate Director for Economic Opportunity and Transition Policy. What that means, all things transition, employment, and education for VFW. Okay. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what exactly all that entails, let's start a little bit off. You, I understand, are a veteran yourself, so tell us a little bit about uh, when you served, what you did, when you got out, all that good stuff. Sure, sure. So, uh, 29-year total veteran from uh, U.S. Air Force. So, Uh, when were you actually in the military? 1987. (laughs) That's when I started, yeah. Back in the uh, late 80s, uh, went in right after high school, Um, obviously joined the Air Force, um, Active duty, uh, came out, joined the reserves after that, served reserve, uh, air reserve technician, which is a blend of military and civil service, and back on active duty in 2008, and uh, finally retired in 2016. All right. So let me ask you this. Um, when you were getting out, uh, that transition, of, well, you were, you were in the reserve, so it wasn't that hard of a transition going from military to civilian. But what do you remember about that transition? Was it scary? Did you, were you on top of things? How did that go for you? Well, you don't know what you don't know. And so, yes, it was scary, even though I was a uh, senior leader, so E-9 in the uh, U.S. Air Force, Chief Master Sergeant. It was still uh, a frightening experience because uh, I had data. I had tools and resources, but the implementation and using those resources is uh, totally uh, scary, uh, to put it bluntly. So reaching out to all of those resources and trying to navigate the, um, those hurdles can be a frightening experience. And that's what we do at VFW, and that's part of our job here is to reduce those barriers to transition, employment, and education. Okay. Now, before we get, again, into the details, if you could give someone a piece of advice, someone who is transitioning from the military to civilian life, uh, other, other than talk to you, obviously, what advice would you give someone? Utilize the resources that are at your specific installation, post, base, um, such as your military and family support centers, um, those are great resources. Uh, they have become one-stop shop locations on each installation for both 
internal and external resources to help you transition. Okay. All right. Now, you we said you deal a lot with transition, and um, there have been a lot of news going on and things that concern that. And uh, we were talking earlier, and one of the big ticket items to pass for veterans this year, aside from the Mission Act, obviously, is the passing of the new, quote-unquote, forever GI Bill. This was heralded as a big win for veterans because it removed the 15-year uh, deadline for using your service. Now you could get out when you were 20 and use it when you were 80. It's just this fantastic thing. However, we soon learned that there were several caveats. Can you tell me about what those, dealing with transferability, correct? Yes. Um, so backing up just a little bit on the uh, Forever GI Bill piece, um, uh, obviously implemented 1 August. So uh, we're starting to uh, take some of the um, phone calls and uh, concerns that, uh, after implementation, uh, one of them being that um, it only applies to veterans or service, service members that uh, have separated after 1 January 2013. So everyone prior to that still have that delimiting or, or expiration date oh. uh, for benefits. So it's very important that uh, they understand that, number one. But to answer your question, we go back and um, and we look at this transferability piece. Well, six years in to 16. So DOD is implementing a, um, originally it was a retention tool. So all they're doing at this point is executing that piece of their um, their policy. And so that means for a service member, you have to transfer that eligibility um GI Bill eligibility to your dependents prior to that 16-year point. Now, you've still got until next year, 2019. I think the time frame is May or June time frame to do that. But it's very important that uh, if you fall into that category, if you're getting close to 16 years, you need to consult with your career and education and education counseling uh, folks on your team. I mean, that seems, to me, that seems a bit unfair because, I mean, especially in today's age, people are having kids later and later. So if I'm in the Army now and I'm, you know, 21 years old or, or I'm, you know, I will 16 years be closer to like 33 or so right. like I am now, uh, I may not have kids, but I have kids later. So, but if I don't transfer before that 16 year mark, I can't transfer the abilities. I can still use it whenever, but I can't transfer those benefits. And I think that's kind of messed up, don't you think? Well, it's, and again, this is one of those tools that DOD decided to implement um, policies, and um, it, was, um, it was a quick decision. And, um, and so now all of your um, veteran service organizations, we're out there trying to promote, educate, and inform the force um, again to transfer those benefits as soon as possible. Um, yes, I understand that uh, if you're having kids later in time, uh, later in your career or later in life, um, they may not be able to take advantage of, of that transferability. Okay, so what is the VF do doing to help educate people? You said educate and inform, and you're urging people to go talk to their education offices, but what else are you doing to sort of get the word out? So we get the word out through social media, through our VFW magazine, uh, through print articles, uh, we've got a great uh, comms team out there in uh, Kansas City, and we also have someone here, um, our, our director of public affairs uh, here in the uh, D.C. office. But we use multiple approaches to get the word out. We also have 24 pre-discharge counselors out there at 
installations across the, the country. And those individuals are out there to inform, educate uh, on VA benefits 101, as well as do pre-discharge claims. So those are people out there at the installations that are informing the force uh, right there, boots on ground, uh, essentially. Okay. Now, is this something that the VFW is trying to lobby to change, or are you more just rolling with the punches on this? Right now, it appears that uh, we're rolling. And, okay. Uh, but I would have to defer to our legislative department, Carlos, and, and those guys uh, to answer that question a little bit better. Yeah, you're talking with Carlos Fuentes, right? Exactly. Yeah, we, we talked to him several times, exactly. so I'll remember that next time the grill him. Say, hey, Tony said talk <laughs> to you. Right. All right. So um, what do people need to do? Like, can you explain to me the process of how you uh, transfer these benefits? Like, how does that work? So if you want to transfer, first and foremost, as I mentioned, you need to talk to your education counselors uh, on your particular installations and posts. Once you do that, they're going to probably inform you to go to MillConnect uh, platform uh, website. You can go there. Uh, as long as your dependents are registered in DEERS, they will pop up in MillConnect. And then you're able to do a couple clicks and transfer a number of months to each individual, your spouse, and any dependent that's registered in DEERS or that populates MillConnect. Um, it is a... Um, it is a recommendation that you transfer at least one month to each individual. That way you have the option after retirement or after separation to move a number of months around amongst those dependents. Really, you can do that because that kind of sounds like a way around the system that you can give them one month now because you're not sure if they're going to go to college and later in life you can say, hey, okay, you're going to go to college, here's more months. Exactly. That's exactly right. Oh, wow. Exactly. So you transfer the one month, but if you don't, if you never transfer anything, and we get calls like this every day, uh, emails and phone calls where a service member will either forget, they're not educated on the process, informed on the process, and they do not transfer at least one month to their dependent. All of a sudden, fast forward 18 years or so, and they're ready to go to college, and they're thinking, well, I can go in and transfer months, and no. They can't. It's too late. But if they've secured one month transfer, then they're able to move months back and forth between dependents, um, regroup. If you go to school, as you mentioned, if you go to school, you don't use all the months. You can harvest those months back and transfer to a different dependent. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's, you know, screw the system, man. <laughs> Find your way around it, you know. <laughs> but that's good. That's good. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that like, I had no idea about. And that's why it's important that people talk to people like Tony Lowe from the VFW, with who we're speaking of, who has an extraordinarily long title. Mm -hmm. So we'll get back to that. <laughs> but uh, so you deal with things that deal with transition. What else uh, does the VFW do in terms of helping people transition? Like, what sort of programs do y'all have? What, what do you do on a daily basis? Gotcha. How do you justify your existence? Right. So our the, the branch or the arm that I work under is National Veteran Service. So you heard me mention National Legislative Service with Carlos and his team. We've got National Veteran Service with Ryan Gallucci, and, and obviously I'm part of that team. National Veteran Service last year alone um, recouped approximately $7 billion worth of VA benefits for Whoa. veterans. And as Ryan likes to say, $7 billion with a B. <laughs> it is, um, 
it's substantial. As I mentioned earlier, we've got 24 um, pre-discharge counselors out there scattered throughout the U.S. Uh, again, literally boots on ground, assisting veterans every day, informing them on how to navigate the transition hurdles, uh, meaning they're speaking at the TAP briefings, the precept briefings. They're um, speaking at the executive TAP briefings. So they're educating not only the E3, but all the way up through the general officer um, okay. target. So uh, you mentioned the general officers. Like, this is a, that kind of assumption. You can answer this being an E9 yourself, is mm-hmm. that people tend to think that once you get that high up, your transition is like like that, like you know exactly what you're doing, like I'm going to go do this. But we've talked to several command sergeants major and even mm-hmm. a few higher level officers like colonels, lieutenant colonels, even some brigadier generals that have said that they had no idea what they were doing to get out. Does that, it, it, is th- does that make up like a, a significant amount of the people you talk to, those higher up people? I would say not a significant number, but yes, it's reality. Um, there's a portion that... Uh, we really haven't figured out now that we're all adults and grown up, we need to figure out what we want to do. Um, obviously, if you're in a DC, you have uh, a lot of different opportunities as a uh, general or flag officer or an E9 um, with contracting, uh, consulting, so on and so forth. But it's open at aperture. Uh, you may be um, specific or unique to doing, accustomed to doing one thing. Uh, but it's open in that aperture. Whether you're an E3 or 06 or 07, you have to open that aperture and uh, look at all the possibilities out there, um, especially if you're planning on relocating. So take, for instance, if you're here in D.C. and you're separating, but you're moving back to California or Iowa or somewhere else, it is, uh, it's important that you really research the opportunities are there. Now, part of the transition program is uh, to help you figure out what you want to do. Here are your skill sets. Now, what are you qualified to do? Well, what do you want to do as well? Okay. So that's sort of, it's it's the eternal question of, like, I'm trying to decide, what do you want to be when you grow up? Exactly. It's like, you know, I may, I'm 33 years old. I'm, you know, that's that old saying, uh, growing old is mandatory, but growing up is optional. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's sometimes derogatory, but we'll move past that. Yeah. But, uh, and it's this, you know, it's that same thing. And it's like, so what do you, here's a question, and I've often had, the, one of the jokes, at least in the Army, and something in the Marine Corps as well, is that someone like an infantry person is, you're going to look at them and say, okay, cop or security guard, which do you choose? You know, you kind of shook your head there. Hell so, yeah. you know, what, what do you say to someone who says, oh, I'm, you know, I was just a grunt, I don't have any skills, what do you say to that person? Brother, we have to open their aperture. We have to really need a knee counseling like this and tell them, listen, you've got a skill set that most people don't have. Um, If you're in charge of a squad or a platoon or whatever, it is um, you're demonstrating and executing skills every day that potential employers, they want. And part of our job at at the National Veterans Service and specifically in, in my position is to connect those employers with those veterans and and again it's about educating and informing you'll hear me use those two buzzwords a lot but that's what it boils down to it's educating and informing our population um, 
is specifically for uh, Love and Bravo or someone like that, that listen, you are not segregated specifically to law enforcement, security guard, or, or something like that. And again, there's a lot of tools out there. Um, recently, you've heard that uh, Google started an initiative mm-hmm. under their search feature. You type in jobs for veterans and it pops up. You put in your MOS and um, it populates with jobs in that specific region, wherever you decide to, uh, to look. Um, but also there's uh, your job path. Uh, dot com. They've done a really good job of um, taking those uh, 7,500 MOSs and consulting with HR companies and transferring or translating those MOSs into civilian um, position descriptions, so to speak. And uh, so once you type in your, let's say, 11 Bravo in your job path, then all of a sudden you're getting some additional hits goes back to what I said earlier, educating it kind of opens your aperture to wait a minute. Hey, I'm qualified to do ABC XYZ over here. Yeah. Cause people don't realize, like you say, if you're a squad leader, yeah, you're, you're just managing a bunch of grunts, but at the same time, you're executing these leadership abilities, these talents that people don't, you don't think about because you do them every day. It's That's like, right. it's, you know, making sure that everyone's in the right place in the right time, you know, the hurting the cats and stuff like that. That's a valuable skill. Like you could teach. Oh, all of a sudden, I'm tasked. I'm qualified to be a project manager or a Absolutely. team leader or something. And like I just the other day, I decided to go into this. I typed in my MOS forty six Romeo, public affairs broadcast journalist, the pogiest of the pogue. We'll say. <laughs> hey, I don't. I don't know about it. I did my time in combat, but anyway. Uh, and all these officers came up, like, graphic designer. That's apparently in very high demand here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it just goes to show that, like you said, widening the aperture. you got to make people aware of what they're qualified to do because they don't think about it. That's right. And here's the beauty of that. Once you type in and you see graphic designer, you say, well, wait a minute. I don't have those skills. Guess what? There are folks out there, public-private partnerships out there in the community that will help you get those certifications, that credentialing. So if you want to go that route, that's fine. They'll help you do that. And that's that's the beauty of um, connecting uh, vets. <laughs> like that? Yeah. <laughs> a little plug, a little tagline, <laughs> connecting vets every day. Yeah, but no, you're right. And uh, so what would you say to that, uh, that we'll say... 21-year-old infantryman that did, you know, did some time in the sandbox, got out as an E5, a, you know, small, a, a team leader, and he said to you, uh, Tony, what can I do? How would you help him? I would first, um, obviously, we sit down and we talk about um, his background, and we identify and start to peel back what skill sets he has. Then... That question of, well, what do you want to do? And if they have a, an inkling of what they want to do, then that's where we start reaching out into the community and partnering folks up with that individual. So there's great mentorship programs out there, Veterati, uh, other, other um, mentorship programs where we can connect a specific individual like them and help them take them by the hand and lead them through the process as well. Okay, so... I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit here. I'm going to ask kind of a kind of a personal question. Relax, sure. it's not that kind of personal. All right, thanks. But uh, I want to know why do you do what you do? Because you got, I mean, it can't be easy. 
you know, dealing with all these veterans with, you know, dealing with tons of veterans, each with specific issues and cooking them up with all these different people and helping them find jobs and stuff. Why do you put up with it? Well, as you know, it's um, when you do this type of work, you have to have a, a passion for it. And my passion comes from uh, being able to serve in multiple um, statuses. So active duty, reserve, technician, AGR, so on and so forth. So I've seen the full scope of and, and hurdles with each duty status. But it all boils down to, back to what you said earlier, all of a sudden now you're ready to transition and you're grown up. What do you want to do? And it's very uh, frightening for a service member and their families. And that's the other piece we have to remember. There's a flip side to that. If there's a family involved, they're going through this transition with that service member. And so talking to countless of folks out there that have uh, had bad experiences, it really drives my passion to be able to try to help each individual. I've had a couple of great success stories. Uh, one that I'd like to share is um, Vietnam-era vet, um, 20 years, first sergeant, Air Force, retired, went into uh, civil service, served another 30 years, retired as a GS, you know, 125 or something, <laughs> right. and um, but failed relationships with marriages, his kids, um, difficulties with employers. Uh, obviously, he was able to retire Air Force and retire civil service and make it through, but never confronted his issues back to the Vietnam era. Um, he had a very traumatic experience um, where um, there was a fire. Uh, he was able to save a few people. Others he was not able to save. Um, but he compartmentalized that experience for 30, 40 years. And finally, somehow I, I met up with him and we were able to talk him into uh, getting the assistance he needed. He had filed a claim back in the day for 10%, but he had a bad experience with VA. And um, never went back. So fast forward 30, 40 years later, uh, we were able to get him in, and now he's 100% permanent in total. He's got all of his issues addressed by the VA. It was a very um, quick process. And, uh, but that's, that's what we do um, at VFW. We take these folks and we help them through the process and help them navigate those hurdles, reduce those barriers. Okay. Uh, let me ask you to sell yourself here for a second. Uh, why should people come to the VFW? I mean, why, why, what is it that you offer that you can't get anywhere else? I think that, I mean, that's a great question. I think it's our training. Um, yes, it's passion as well To And we love what we do, but it's the training and the implementation of that training, the execution piece of that, um, any accredited service officer by the VA, we we, um, we go through some ungodly amount of hours of training uh, <laughs> from the VA, and we're blessed and certified to do that. But it's the execution of that training. And our leadership holds us to a higher standard, and we must perform, and we must um, execute that training flawlessly. We have to be uh, advocates for that veteran. And we have to help them through the process. We have a duty, not only a duty to assist, 
uh, by VA standards, but we have a duty and a moral obligation uh, from VFW as well. Yeah, those are people... <clears throat> excuse me people talk about all the time is that like you know veterans as a group give so much and then it's up to us to sort of help them with that transition and it, 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 it can't it's never an easy process i anyone who says they had a really smooth easy transition you're not looking close enough there were there was something yeah. that you had trouble with that someone had to help you along the way and that's why we have people like yourself and uh so if people want to learn more about your program, what you can do for them, how do they figure out this information? Sure. So we've got a great comprehensive webpage, uh, www.vfw.org. Again, that's vfw.org. Uh, all the information you need is on that webpage. You can also follow Economic Opportunity on Twitter at uh, vfw underscore econ underscore op. Okay. Well, Tony Lowe from the VFW, thanks so much for being on the show, man. We really appreciate well, brother, it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you for what you do. You're helping out a lot of you're helping out a lot of people. And I can I can feel the passion, man. <laughs> thank you. All right, you're listening to the morning briefing. We shall return right after this. Don't go anywhere. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.